Yeah, right. Chris, I, you, know. <laughs> you got your license, dude. Yeah. Fuck. That, <laughs> you just, I read that in your book, Chris. Chris, when I read your book, I read that in the preface. Yeah, so. Well, I was a defensive Chris's player. Book, Chris's book is titled Fuck You. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That will no, fuck Tim, you, then we'll get Tim, Tim, it also no. says, fuck you, I scored 20 goals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like real small writing. When I stepped on the ice, I never backed down, and I never stayed down. And I was vicious, and I was malicious, and I don't care. I'm alive. He's a freaking madman. Look at him going to town. That'll be a suspension. Anita, welcome to the show. Awesome stuff. Listen, um, you're coming out with a new book, Unfuck Your Life and Relationships. And uh, Anita, this book is coming out December 6th, I believe. You can get it at Simon & Schuster website, Amazon, Bonds & Noble, BAM, Books A Million, B, Bookshop, Indie Bound, to name a few. And people can also follow Anita on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, under Ask Anita Astley. You can also go to her website, www.askanitaastley.com. And we have Anita here today, and we're going to ask her some things. No question about it. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's go. Welcome Let's get on fucked, right? Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for having yeah. me. I'm excited. You know, We've I'm a Habs fan, um, and I'm originally from of... Montreal. Sorry, you know that, right? I'm a Habs fan, originally from Montreal. So I really well, admire. I thought you were originally this. from from India. I thought you well, originally you know, from that's India. going way back. But I've you know identified as a Canadian, <laughs> okay. Canadian, well, Indian, American. We're going American. way back today. <laughs> that's Let's where we start today. We we start way back today. We're not going to let you off the hook. You think? Yeah, we're not going to talk about the Canadians all day. I got to listen to the Canadians every episode we do. All right. We're not going to (laughs) talk. Listen, I can talk about anything and everything, so let's do it. Yeah, let's rock. Do you think I'm going to let you off the hook uh, with Dr. Frank? You think Dr. Frank's the only (laughs) one that's going to get to psychoanalyze you? Mm, Knuckles is going to do the psychoanalyzing today. I'm scared. No. All right. Anita, uh, again, Listen, I I read the book and it goes back to the beginning with you. And anytime I have someone on this podcast, Tim and I, I love to go back to the beginning because it tells a family of origin tells so much about a person. Uh, yes. I've, I've had the opportunity to do a little of that work myself, but it tells so much about that person and how they what where their journey began and how they ended up where they are, how mm-hmm. they ended up having to get unfucked so uh, let's go back to the beginning in india okay wow all you were you're really talking about the beginning okay so i was born in india (laughs) in a small village (laughs) near a table in the house um and then my i'm a so i'm the middle child i have an older brother and i have a younger brother which you know sunil i give him a shout out and then uh, I grew up yeah. in a very patriarchal culture. I grew up in India. We migrated to Germany. I'm going to try to condense it all because it's a long story. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, you, you can read yeah. it in the book. And then I, we ended up in Montreal, Canada. And then I have moved since then to upstate New York. And, uh, and now I live in Brookfield, Wisconsin. So it's been a long journey, though, because uh, as you know, you and I, Chris, talked earlier um, I grew up with this bi- bicultural identity conflict. You know, my parents were very traditional 
Indian, we were a very traditional Indian family, but I, you know, was growing up in Pierre Fowle in Montreal and I just wanted to be like everyone else. I wanted to adapt to mainstream culture and my, my family had a really hard time with it. And particularly my father, who, um, even though he enjoyed traveling and was, I think, ultimately happy, ultimately content that he did migrate and was able to give his children better opportunities that he, you know, opportunities he didn't have. But I think psychologically it worked against him because he left all his family behind. And, you know, you can read all about that in my book in terms of what he struggled with, uh, his own demons, and what men struggle with, as I find in my private practice, depression, which often goes unrecognized, undiagnosed, and of course, untreated, and that, you know, manifests itself in so many different ways. Yeah, well, so you move from India, Germany, and then you come to Montreal. You end up going to McGill, um, yeah, and and graduating, and you, you set up a nice practice for yourself today. But when when you talk about those times growing up in Montreal and the cultural things you had to deal with through your dad, uh, like the difficulty of that. Now, from my understanding, yeah, in Indian culture, I I watched, um, uh. What's her name? Auntie, Auntie Sim. Uh, okay. It was about Indian relationships, matchmaking, yes. Indian matchmaking, matchmaking on Netflix. Yes, and there are, right. a, yeah, there's a, a there are um, arranged marriages in that culture, and and yes. that's something you had to deal with, no? Yes, it's the norm. I think it's changed. Well, it is changing. It's a bit more progressive where I think women have some say uh, in whether they want to part marry the person that's been brought to them. There's a, there's a bit of a courting process, but I grew up with the message that nice Indian girls don't date. And when you're ready, we will marry you, particularly from my father. And I did not, you know, that did not sit well with me because I was just trying to be a normal Canadian girl, teenager. And that caused a lot of friction within my family, uh, particularly with my dad. My dad, I think, had trouble in integrating more into the culture than my mom did. My mom was pretty easygoing. Of course, she compensated. You know, in families, we always have that one parent who's stricter than the other, and the other one compensates uh, for the other's strictness. And my dad totally was. Like, I wasn't allowed to go anywhere. Of course, I did. I sneaked out and did all kinds of stuff. But I wish I didn't have to do that, but I had to. It was my coping mechanism. Did so you, did you learn French? Oui, je parle français. Can you speak French? Oui. Oh, Vous? okay. It's better than better than Chris's, that's for sure. Chris, tu parles français. Well, he's from Boston, you know. Oui, je parle un petit peu français, madame. Tu parles un petit peu, oui. Bien sûr. Oui, oui, je comprends un plus de parle. Um, you know. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. We better switch back okay. to English. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. don't understand anything. But uh, yeah, sure, Tim, and you're throwing bombs out at me. Um, <laughs> You bastard. So, so that, it's difficult. Uh, right. <clears throat> it's difficult. So, Growing up in let, two let's cultures. Let's say this. Yeah. Yeah, those two cultures difficult. So say I worked with your dad back in the day. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I come in contact with you, and I'm like, Anita, how are you? We go on a date, and then it becomes much more, and we say, geez, we want to no. get married. Your father would, wouldn't accept that. And he I definitely would. wouldn't arrange for me to marry you. Definitely not, Chris. Um, 
I would not have okay. introduced you to my father. My father made it very clear that I was no not allowed to talk to boys. They were not allowed to come to the house. None of that happened in my life. So one of the best things I did, you know, well, I mean, I don't want to villainize him. He only did what he knew how to do. You know, that's in the book. And I strongly share that with other people yeah. that the book and my story and therapy is not about bashing our parents. It is trying to understand where we've come from, yeah. trying to explore the past in order to make changes in our lives that need to be made because my parents did the best that they could with what they had and they were dealing with own their own issues so it's not about bashing them it's more trying to understand their own journey and as an adult woman I can do that now I wasn't able to do that then because obviously I was struggling with my own issues with identity and so forth so getting back to your question I would never have done that what I the best thing I did as I was saying I got a job and that allowed me to get out of the house and, you know, uh, see boys, go to the mall, do all that kind of stuff. But that was not even an option to think, oh, my God, am I going to bring Chris home? Is daddy going to like him? No fucking way. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. I yeah. would be killed. See you fucking later. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I would I be would. killed. You would God. be killed and I, we would both be dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm Sorry, glad Chris. That <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. God. Imagine We'll I, avoid that. I thought it, I thought it was bad going going to ask um, the hand of marriage of my my ex wife from uh, my right. father in law. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think, in the uh, Indian culture, yeah. it's the parents who ask, not the boy or the girl. It's the parents. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's so, a little bit more progressive. Relationships. Now. Yes. Yeah. So relationships. Okay. Uh, what. What makes a healthy relationship, I guess? You know, let's let's start with that. What makes a healthy relationship? Is there any criteria per se that, you know, these three things you got it made? Well, there's no magic formula, right? I mean, I talk about those basic things in the this book, what we need to do to get back to building healthy relationships. Uh, there are certain things that I believe do need to be in place for that to happen. And I talk about that in the book. But I really want to talk about the primary relationship, which is the relationship which we, we have with ourselves. I often come across people and they're, by the way, I just want to say, when we talk about relationships, we are talking about a variety of relationships. People come to me and say, well, I don't, you know, because I, I, I ask them, how, how are the relationships in your life? And they say, well, I don't have one. I'm like, dude, you totally do. A relationship is not exclusive to a romantic relationship. We have the primary relationship is with the self, us. And then we have relationships every, with everybody that's in our life, our families, siblings, co-workers, Tim, Chris, you guys together. So relationships are everywhere. We cannot escape them. We are born into relationships. And once we leave home, what do we do? We seek other relationships. I believe we're hardwired. We're social animals. We need that intimacy, the emotional intimacy. So getting back to your question, we need to work on ourselves first. It is the cornerstone. Which, which huh? No, I like that. I like that because I work, I work with a therapist. You know, I think man, I don't Good know how to, where to start, but like, no. And, and I do yeah. because I eventually, cause you know, you're fucked. Yeah. Like well, I was yeah. somebody who like was not good. And like in yes. my head, I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, self-acceptance. And like for me, yeah. things have been better in my life with like my wife and things like that. But you have to really love yourself and trust yourself before you can go do that with anybody, I think. But you can't sometimes, I mean, I just think you can't do any of this like by yourself. It's my, no. you know, and I'm, like, listen, like, I'm right. I don't know. 
Well, some people, you know, we have varying, we have different types of coping mechanisms and everybody does, but I want to first say thank you for sharing that. And I think the more men that come out and share that they are in therapy, uh, it'll make it easier for other men to seek therapy and talk about their own therapy. That still in 2022, I come across men um, who still feel it's a weakness. It's a, they're ashamed to say that they have to go see somebody or they're ashamed that they're struggling with their emotions and they should be the alpha male and be able to do it all. So I'm glad to hear that you're doing that and thank you for sharing that. And yeah, it is uh, sometimes we need to go to someone to unfuck our minds and ourselves. And getting back to Chris, what you were saying, um, we are all fucked up. It's just different degrees of fucked mm-hmm. upness. And we just have very different coping mechanisms. And some people need to get some help. So there's nothing wrong with that. So it starts with, you know, what um, you were saying, self-awareness. We have to be, we have to know our shit and then we have to own it. We have to work on ourselves. Because if we don't do that, what do we do? We go around spewing it on other people. And then some people do that repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And they have a graveyard of relationships. And I always think, well, it can't be everyone. So what the fuck is going on with you? And people often are, what do you mean? Me, it's not me, it's them. Uh, They externalize everything, meaning everything is somebody else's fault. But at some point, if your relationships are mostly not working out, then it's you and you've got to look in the mirror and start working on yourself, asking yourself those questions. Basically that um, the negative consequences come from that poor relationship with oneself, right? And Yes, I believe so, Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, like, like I'm a pro. Like, yes, I, I, I believe so too. Like, I can be the guy that, like, I'm the problem, but I'm gonna blame everyone else. Yeah. For which the problem is me, but I can't fix the problem with, like, I can't fix me. I that's why I, I do what I do because, uh, like you said, it's it's about owning up and and being honest. And no one's perfect. I, I like, I love everything you're saying for sure. Yeah, no one is perfect, and um, you know, you're saying you can't fix you. Uh, well, you can by starting and you and you are, I want to say, Tim, by owning that, you know, a lot of the stuff you have to work on yourself. And I want to talk about an important concept. I don't want to get all clinical and blah, blah, blah. But I think projection is one of the most important things that we need to work on, which is and I'll define it very quickly. Projection is when we misinterpret something as coming from the outside when it's really coming from the inside, meaning we blame other people, but it's really our own issue somewhere in our family of origin, we have learned that it's not acceptable to share negative thoughts, negative feelings, and negative behavior. So we put it onto somebody else. A simple example is if I'm feeling really angry um, and I've, you know, somewhere learned unconsciously that, you know, you can't express anger. It's horrible. I might say to Chris, Chris, you look really angry right now. And Chris might be like, well, no, I'm not feeling angry. I don't think I'm looking. I'm not doing anything that says I'm angry. It's because I can't say I'm fucking angry at you, Chris, for what you did. You put it on me. I put it on you rather than saying, hey, wait a minute, I'm angry. I have to own my anger and deal with it and learn to become comfortable with aggressive feelings. A lot of people are not. And you know what? The the people that really irk me are people who say, oh, I'm not aggressive. I'm just, you know, I'm like, yeah, fuck, you're you're probably very (laughs) passive aggressive because you want to make me be even more aggressive. Why? Because you can't own your aggression. 
We, by nature, are aggressive and it's okay. We are hardwired to be, and there's a reason for that. There's a self-protection, but when it starts to drip into our relationships and we start projecting and becoming passive aggressive is when we cannot own our ship and shit, we don't see what's going on within ourselves. I've been dying to ask this question, maybe so I can sound, sound smart. You're not you like a dumb hockey player. Um, You're not. I, I, I'm curious, um, when in reading your book, yeah. you talked about general IQ and relational IQ. General IQ being the measure of a person's reasoning ability. And then yeah. relational IQ, explore, understand how we relate to others. And we adjust our behavior based on uh, individual or social interactions. Now, that being yes. said... Is there any correlation between someone with a high general IQ and like having a low relational IQ? You know how some people are so book smart there and then it comes to dealing with people and they're fucked. They're not really good at it. Well, I'm not. Yeah, I don't want to quantify that with a number or say there's a positive or negative correlation or relationship. But I will say is that when that IQ is general is higher than the relational IQ, um, and sometimes that happens. I don't want to make a grand generalization. It's because no, I get we you. compensate on one side, and people do. We all, by nature, compensate somewhere in our lives to make up for a blind spot that we have. So it could be true. In my experience, clinically speaking, it is generally true. I have people come in who are very successful, CEOs, running companies, and then they come in with these issues. And I think, oh, my God, that just seems very basic to me, not just because I'm a therapist, but they don't see it at the level that I see it at. And that's because their relational IQ is not up to par with their uh, intellectual IQ. And it's and I talk about that in the book. Where does that come from? Where is our relational IQ coming from? What does it look like? And how do we navigate and negotiate with it in our lives? And it's again, it's a function of our family of origin and the successive relationships we have with people outside of that. So we carry around all this stuff from our family of origin, and most of us tend to repeat it in other relationships until or unless we realize, wait a minute, this stuff is not working for me. Uh, And I had to do that in my own relationships. It's pretty fucked up because it's uh, intellectually I know this, but emotionally it doesn't translate because I keep on doing the stupid things and it's not working. The result is the same. But again, it becomes about becoming aware of, you know, what is my relational IQ? We tend to always think of IQ as quantitative and having to do with intellect, but we have to be attuned to other people in our lives. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to, as you said, Tim, fix ourselves or fix the relationship. And that's what I mean by relational IQ. Where are you in your relational IQ? And people need to evaluate that by evaluating their relationships. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, are you good? No, I was just thinking in my head, like, what what is it that people, why is it so hard to ask for help, right? Like, why is it like when it comes to like my career or everything in life, I can really thank a lot of people. But when it comes to me, it's like, you know, I only understand me, no one else. You know what I mean? But the truth is, is like, whatever I'm going through, there's a lot of, you're not alone, right? Like, that's what I'm finding out, right? Like, it's like, like, not alone. But like, what is it that, you know, is it? it's 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 a scary i mean it's a 
it's an important topic is like the, that first step to ask for help. I don't know what yes. it is, but a lot of people just don't want to do it. I didn't want to do it for a long time, but. And what stopped you? Can I ask I was you? Like, what was the, what was the barrier for you? You, you it sounds like you needed, you knew fear that you needed fear. help. Fear of. Yes. Fear of fear. fear? Of rejection. Oh, you know, okay. like some, yeah, yeah. Fear, yeah. Just like, yeah. Fear of like, I don't know, um, codependency, worrying about, you know, so much what people think, but the truth was, is like, I, you know, like over time in the past few years, been, been doing this, it's like my life, me, I've been less reactive to things. I've okay. been more just, you know, responding and, 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 um, yeah, like just kind of, in, you know, being, like you said, owning up. Um, but yeah. yeah, the fear was probably just, yeah, I don't know. You're, it's, no, it's well, a good well, question. That's... It's like, I don't, it's a, like it's I'm a great, failing if I go get help, right? Yeah. It's a great uh, comment right, that you're guess, making yeah, go ahead. because fear is what keeps people from getting help and particularly men and men, you know, we're in a, you know, you guys are in hockey players. Um, I can't even imagine what it's like to have that persona publicly and privately be suffering. And then how do you go and ask for help when you're the enforcer? You're there, out, you know, to protect your team and beat up people. How, how are you going to go to somebody and say, hey, you know, this is what I do. But inside, I'm this scared little boy. I hate going out on the ice, you know, no, knowing that I have to go no, beat somebody up. Yes, you I'm were. not a scared little we boy. All are. We, no, we all are. Don't you ever tell me point. that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Chris, I got news for you. No. <laughs> well, getting getting back to that. Wait, wait, let me finish. Getting back to that scared little boy. Okay. I want to talk about this, yeah. this concept of the inner child. You know, I talk about that in the book. Uh, my inner child. I was just going to say that. My <laughs> inner child. I want to I wanna hold him and hug him and yeah, kiss him can. and love him and say, you can. you're a good little boy. Oh, you can it out, and you, you should. Fucker. Chris, you can and you should. <laughs> no. Our inner ch- we all have an inner child, okay? And what is the inner child? It is yeah. that child that we know very well who has certain triggers. And when they get triggered, we regress to those parts of our lives. And sometimes we don't handle things too well. Mm. So... <laughs> So I say, listen, we got to right. work out that inner child's problem. We got to talk to him or her. I always, I embrace mine and I love my inner child, but I put her fucking back in her place when she's trying to govern my adult life. Your inner child, my whole point is, doesn't have to and shouldn't govern your adult life. Just know that I know she's there and I know she gets triggered when, you know, my issues or whatever, I'm feeling a certain way, but I know that she needs to go back. And this is the adult Anita who's worked on all her issues Mostly who needs to make adult decisions, you know, and you talk about fear. Fear is a huge part of uh, mental health and trying to get the help we need. Fear is a barrier, particularly for men, because we're afraid to really look into ourselves, what's going on in our psyche um, and what happens if we unravel. You know, people ask me that all the time Uh, and they say to me, you know, Anita, um, I was afraid to come in here and sometimes our sessions are scary and I'm afraid that sometimes I actually feel worse after our sessions than I ever have felt before. And I think, okay. And I normalize that. I said, of course, because out of my office, you can walk around in the world and you can hide all those things that you do to get you to be functional, which is what we want. Um, but when we're in here, we talk about all those things um, that you're scared to talk about out there and you're scared to face yourself and you're scared to confront other people in your life. And to get to the other side, it is, I believe fear is, it keeps us from going where we want to go in life. And it's, 
keeps us from acknowledging and working on ourselves and particularly men. In my experience in working with male population, that's the number one thing. People, who's going to find out that I'm in here? I've had actually men come in and say, well, can I <laughs> yeah. wait in my car? Because what if I see somebody in the office or here? I'm like, dude, I can't control the whole environment, right? If that's going to make you more comfortable, I will do that because I want you to be in here. But can we just start working on that? Like take the stigma off. Oh my God, I'm in a therapist waiting room. What if somebody sees me? And I want to bring that back to, you know, if you're Chris Nyland, the hockey player, you know, when you were out, even now, if somebody sees you, uh, you might be thinking, hey, Anita, can you set it up so I don't have to encounter people and they'll know that I'm in therapy? And I think, well, okay, we're going to work on that because what's the shame in it? And I know, Chris, from learning about you that, you know, you've worked in on a lot of issues yourself also. So I'm just saying way back when, if you think about when you started your process, fear was probably one of the governing things that was keeping you from doing what you needed to do and wanted to do. I was going to say, it's funny because most men and friends that I've brought, that I've said, yeah, I see a therapist. Most of them are like, man, I should see one. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. You know, I, I, yeah. So it's kind of funny that uh, it's, it's, that's how it is. Like we think like that as men, but the truth it's it's so opposite. Like I think every a lot of people want to get help, but they're afraid to, right? They think they are everyone else stigma. Think. Yeah, yeah, yeah stigma. it's a stigma, that, and we that, all talk about it. And we all hear it in the, in the news with with athletes. You know, all kinds of things are still struggling with. They're very reluctant to come forward. So, Chris, I want to say I watched uh, the documentary on you and I was really um, I want to say kudos to you that you've come out and talked about a lot of your issues and struggles during your career, post career. It takes a lot of courage to put yourself out there. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, I appreciate it. And again, you said it earlier, the pain, people go to the office, they feel that pain. Listen, I and I believe it. No pain, no gain. You, you don't get over things, you get through them, you work right. your way through them. And I yeah. understood that <clears throat> only through therapy, because mm-hmm. it was always like, get over it, I can suck it up, keep moving on, you know. And as far as, <clears throat> you know, that, that little boy with all the fear, I know where that came from too, like yeah. very well. Yeah. Uh, at the time when I was going through everything, um, and I was doing my job as a player, I didn't understand where the fear aspect that with how that played into it. Yeah. And only when I took a step back from it all and I was able to look at it from um, the balcony, if you will. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I was able to understand it more, but I also, it, it, and it's just not all fear based or fear driven. What I did when I mm-hmm. look back, because quite frankly, it takes, a lot of courage, inner courage, to go out there and put yourself on the line for somebody else in a physical way. Yes. And 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 that is not just fear. There's a combination of things going on there. But I I understand the um certainly the fear part and the anger part. Mm-hmm. I do. So can I ask? I'm, I'm you- sure you could enlighten me even more so, but. No, that's your story and your journey, right? I mean, what sounds like you looked at yourself from in therapy, we call ego position. It's looking outside of ourselves, almost at ourselves to see how we're behaving and what what is it that we're trying to communicate to others and to ourselves. But I also want to talk about the relationships, you know, as a professional athlete, 
uh, how complicated it makes your relationships, not only, well, the primary one with yourself and also the people around you and trying to navigate the private world with the professional world and trying to figure out what the heck is going on with me? How do I do all of this? And then fucking it up. Like, you know, the relationships are not working. Perhaps it's infidelity. There's uh, substance abuse that you talk about very openly. And I think that's very common. Well, from my experience, it's very common when you're alone uh, and you're lonely. People are at high risk for using substance and alcohol to deal with the pain because first there is the pain. You're the enforcer. So you're in friggin' pain, right? So you got to deal with that. And then it's very easy. That's a very slippery slope to say, well, this helps me physically. But wait a minute. It's kind of now helping me uh, emotionally. And men do that often. They mm. use substance to numb themselves. Mm. And people will say to me, mm. well, uh, my husband doesn't feel mm. anything. I'm like, no, 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 yeah. no, no. He's saying he's numb. <laughs> He feels an enormous amount of emotions. That's why his body's like, dude, shut the fuck up. I can't deal he with it. He doesn't want to feel. It's, it's easier not yeah. to feel. <laughs> it's an, it's a, actually the opposite. It's an overwhelming the system where it becomes numb. You actually feel so much that you don't feel anything, if that makes any sense. And then you use no, stuff huge, to help yourself, right? It's dangerous. It's a dangerous, Very dangerous. time. Yeah. You know, that's when you can get dependent on things and, and definitely, yeah, no, it's scary for sure. Anyways, keep, sorry, go ahead. No, no it's okay. Um, the, you know, when you talk about that and for sure, I look at my, my own situation, retirement, difficult time transitioning, um, lost little boy. Yeah. Um, and then being married, having three children. There was infidelity, which I'm not proud of. Um, I I took certainly um, that after getting addicted to the medication yeah. and being where I was. Yeah. And then destroying my marriage over it, yeah. that and the infidelity. I was very, um, I was so full of shame and guilt yeah. that it was so overwhelming I I went deeper into addiction. Like I thought I was bad then. Yeah. I went so far down the scale yeah. because I just I was having a hard time with myself. That yes. my own I I was ashamed of myself. The pain yeah. was enormous. Like yeah. it's just overwhelming, and that kept me in my addiction longer. And until yeah. I was able to, you know, get treated physically first. Yes. And then mentally second and then spiritually third, I was just I was no, I was a, a, a mere shadow of myself. Yeah, you lost yourself and all of that. And you were just trying to deal with your pain, your physical and then ultimately your emotional pain. And the shame and guilt behind all of that is enormous. So I'm really I'm really pleased that you're able to get the proper help that you needed. But, you know, sometimes some people are not able to get there. And that's a very dark place to be. That's why doing podcasts like this, bringing awareness to mental health, uh, we need to do that because people, you know, pay lip service to it. We hear about it all the time when somebody commits suicide, a professional athletes, you know, we've been hearing about that. Um, but nothing is really done about it. And I think, well, you know, we have these professional leagues and teams and associations who have a lot of money 
And then we have on those teams, we have a dietitian, we have a rehab person. You guys know more about this than I do. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, where the fuck is a mental health Uh, practitioner? Why (laughs) is there not a therapist on this team traveling with these guys and women who have all of the stress to perform to, you know, people look at you guys, professional hockey players or basketball players, any athlete who's in that league. And we see the only one dimension. There's so many other aspects that we don't see. And that just makes it harder to reach out and get help. But I think to, you know, people, you, you owners out there, managers, uh, get a therapist on board. You They're need as fucked them. up it's as funny. the players. It's funny because it's like 90, the, the game's 99% mental. And you know what I mean? Listen, they always say that. It's like well, life is 99%. Yeah, I was just going to say life is 99.9% yeah, you know. mental and yeah. the other whatever people are lying. It's the body mind mm-hmm. connection. We can't separate the two. And when you're a professional athletes and taking those hits, the mental pressure, the physical pressure, something has to break. You're human. We're all human. And it is all about managing our relationships with ourselves and everybody around us. So, so what hey. is the idea? What? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, what's the ideal relationship an athlete can have with themselves in your in your? An ideal relationship for athletes. Yeah. I would say in general, an ideal relationship we, we have with ourselves, male, female, is to know ourselves really well and what it takes for someone to push our buttons. And once those buttons are pushed, we need to be able to control our reaction. And you had mentioned earlier, Tim, about being that you're less reactive and you're more proactive now. Uh, congratulations, because that's the place we need to live in. I can say we can, you know, and I used to be a very reactive, hot-headed person. It took me a, a long time as, you know, if you read my book, when you read it, I went for six years. I think I was in psychoanalysis for six years two times a week. Let me tell you something. You definitely get to know your shit really well. Own it. And my therapist, Dr. Frank was awesome. He, he didn't tolerate yeah. any of my bullshit because you can, you can try to, you can, if you have a good but therapist, he was they're also not going to get away with it. He was very sensitive. And but he was also sensitive to you, which I found like he, he was almost, uh, you know, like a like a dad should fatherly. be yeah he was a and therapists yeah, represent fatherly. that we we are you know parental figures because you know there's no such thing as a perfect parent i'm a parent and i'm sure i've fucked up lots of ways and i always tell my kids when they're like mom seriously i'm like listen i'm just giving you stuff to talk about with your therapist it can't be a perfect child <laughs> so, so we all fuck things up somehow <laughs> and then yeah therapists become yeah. very parental we're looking for i always sought his validation even now I, you know when i finish the book i you know i won't give it away because it's near the end i still seek his validation because he became after you know you spent you lock yourself up with a person for six years twice a week and you rent you just share everything every thought and an emotion that you have this becomes a vital person in your life even when the relationship ends the therapeutic relationship stays with you there are still moments in my life today that I think oh yeah that's from you know when I was with Dr. Frank and we had talked about this. So I carry him around inside of me like a blanket. He's a security blanket. And I always go back to, you know, those sessions consciously and sometimes very unconsciously. So I just want to say the therapeutic relationship is such a different and unique relationship that uh, it is probably one of the best relationships I've had in my life that helped me to move forward outside of the four walls of his office. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, your book, like even the title, I don't know if you had like unfuck <laughs> yeah. your life. 
your life's fucked. I looked at it like I'm naturally someone that wants to be like, fuck it. Like, I don't want to, I, I avoid confrontation. So like I, oh, where I get into trouble no. is like, I like to isolate and I like to, yeah. I don't want to deal with shit. So I'm like, my mind's always like, fuck this. Like, you know, yeah. but, oh, I just spilled coffee everywhere. Yeah. But anyways, um, no, where You're I was going nervous. with it. She's getting nervous. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, I, hate, I, start, I just yeah. start, cry, I start crying. Okay. Um, no, I'm just, coffee over. we're not allowed to cry. Um, you but are, anyways, no, I was just saying like, <laughs> that's the no, message things have gotten better for me because, yes. because I don't, I, I, I face, you know, I, do uh take on confrontation doesn't mean i'm like arguing with people but you know yeah. i just think yeah that's the difference i would say i'm still work i mean i don't know you're i feel like it's like it. you gotta you're changing like it takes people are different yes. it takes time for you know everyone's different it, it you know but but i think if you're changing it's it, i don't know it's like working well, on yourself i don't think ever like you don't ever graduate like no, you just it doesn't end it only ends know. when you die you know, it only ends when you die. And yeah, I want to, yeah, yeah. I want to just speak to what you're saying is, you know, often people don't want to confront and, con and I talk about this in the book, this whole chapter on conflict resolution, confrontation and conflict. We need to accept that in our relationships, we will have conflict. There is no way out of that. You spend enough time with someone, you're going to have conflict. And what is conflict? It's very healthy, actually, to have conflict with someone. It is basically saying, I'm ready in this relationship to share my you know, two thoughts and feelings with you. And we're not mere images of any other person. So of course we're going to differ. And when we have a conflict, which is a difference of opinion on something, it is an opportunity to, I, you know, I say it a couple of, it's not a bad thing. It's an absolutely fantastic thing that's happening in your relationship. It's an opportunity to increase your emotional intimacy, decrease the emotional intimacy, or keep it to where it is, which is status quo, that neither one of you are willing to go anywhere. Because once you're able to work through the conflict in a healthy manner, then you're like, okay, I can start being more and more of myself. And that's what we really want in healthy relationships. So you guys asked me, what are the key things? We need to be able to be ourselves, our authentic selves. And a lot of the times people are trying to be what the other person wants them to be. It doesn't work. It's not going to be long lasting. You can only play that game for a short period of time until you have to confront, embrace conflict. I said, stop avoiding conflict and running away from it. Embrace it. It's part of building emotional intimacy. You have to. If I can't tell you what I think and feel, and we can't have, you know, a little bit of friction over it and work it out, how's this a real relationship? That's fucked up. That's, yeah, <laughs> I gotta get a towel. Like, we're well at it. I'm gonna give me go a get a second. towel. Go yeah, get a I'll towel. Just, you guys keep going though. Well, you, don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry. So you, you have um, to become comfortable with conflict. You have to become comfortable with confrontation. And then let me tell you, confrontation in society has this negative association. It doesn't have to be something bad. It is not a fight. It is basically saying, hey, Chris, uh, I'm not sure about this. It's not working well for me. What do you think? I'm going to confront you. But again, it's how I confront you. If I just attack you, like you're not doing this right or you got to fix that it's not going to work. It's how I approach you. I'm going to say, Chris, you know, I'm, I'm not comfortable with the way this is going. I'm using I language. I'm taking ownership. I'm not saying you, I'm not attacking you, but that's what generally happens when people confront somebody, they, they right away, well, they attack them. So if I say you yeah. right away, I start finger pointing, you're going to be like, wait a minute. Then we are stuck in this attack defense mode. And that doesn't go anywhere well, because the more you feel attacked, the more defensive you're going to become. And the more defensive you become, the more I'm going to attack you. So we're stuck in this circular argument that that's not breakable. 
But the only way to do that is to stop it and say, wait a minute, you know, I am feeling this way. I'm going to take ownership of when this happens. And then you have room for a conversation. Okay. Um, it's funny. When I played for the Bruins, I went and took a couple of college courses. Public speaking. Yeah. I got an A. I got an A. Imagine. Congratulations. And then I took <laughs> another one. Mediation, negotiation, and conflict management. I yeah. got an A. I, I love those. You know, I only wish I applied myself back when I was going to college and playing hockey. I had yeah. a hockey brain. I, I could care less about school. But that being said, um, and we look at the number of divorces today in the U.S. It's over 50 percent of marriages fail. We look at athletes and, you know, you're in the limelight. You're, you're playing hockey for whatever, 13, 14 yeah. years. All of a sudden it ends. So now you got to deal with all that, plus your relationship, your, your, your family, your kids, yeah. those things. Why, why is that divorce rate so high when it comes to athletes, in your estimation? Yeah, that's a, that's a, wow, that's a big question. Um, I'm, from my experience, I will just speak for myself, I can't generalize, it's because I think for so many years, you know, you focus on uh, one thing, although it's multifactorial, being the best enforcer as you were, you know, from what I know about your game and what the role that you played, you're putting so much. I could so score much... goals too. Stop. Yeah, he had 20 goals one <laughs> year. I scored 20 goals. Okay, okay. No, okay. Told no, no. To, yeah. So don't, <laughs> don't just, you know, pigeonhole me. You're pigeonholing me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I won't allow it. No. Okay, I'm sorry. I got to read your book. <laughs> no. I got to read your book. That you focus so no. much on all of that, that it's very hard. And there's so much pressure. Not that there's not pressure in normal life. There absolutely is. But you are in the spotlight. There's all this pressure to perform. Everybody's watching you, literally counting on you. And then you're trying to deal with all of your emotions physically, you know, your life emotionally on the eyes, the other players and so forth, and wanting to do the best for your team that how do you put um, some energy into a relationship? You know, an athlete, they, if you get married really young and then all of a sudden you have this fame, you have this notoriety and everybody's coming to you. So that goes to the ego. You're only human, right? That is going to impact how you feel about your life and your world. And it's tempting. The temptations are out there. And then if you're not able to keep grounded in that relationship, of course, it's going to fall apart. Absolutely. And the dialogue, you stop talking yeah. to each other because you start the, the hockey becomes your marital partner. The sport becomes your marital partner. And then, of course, your marital partner is uh, feeling neglected and you're not able to build any kind of emotional intimacy with them. Then the marriage does fall apart. All relationships for me ultimately fall apart when there is a lack of emotional intimacy. When people are not able to connect with each other emotionally, everything else is fleeting. Look, sex, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's fleeting. But if you cannot emotionally maintain a connection, then your relationship is at risk. And I think that's what happens. You put so much into the sport and you put so much of yourself into your teammates and everybody around you that how can you possibly have something left for your partner? And I think that over time, as you age, uh, you know, as an athlete, as um, I can't speak for you, but from working with uh, people who are, you know, in that level, they reach a certain age of maturity where they can balance the two. But I think when you're young and you're in all of that, it's really difficult. I would think it's really difficult. You could probably speak more to that, Chris, than I can in terms of that side of the coin. 
What, what was that? Well, I mean, having what, all of that what, when you're having, at a young age, yeah. having all that notoriety, yeah. people know who you are. You can't walk down the street. Fame, uh, the power of all of that, yeah. and being Chris Nyland, and you know, I'm sure women giving you lots of attention, and then you have yeah. a wife at home, and you're young, yeah. like you have a young brain. You're trying to yeah. navigate and negotiate this situation, which is which most of us cannot relate to, right? We are putting yeah. our efforts into our work and then we go home and try to manage our relationships. But to be a professional athlete and to have all of that to navigate and negotiate, that makes it much more difficult to try to navigate and negotiate a personal relationship, I would think. That's yeah. been my experience. Yeah, no, when I got yeah. done playing, I got, I was like, I started slowly getting into like fear of losing everything, you know, oh, like, I was yeah. like, you know, like, well, you know, cause hockey, it was like, I didn't, that's all I knew. And yeah. What's and your I identity, just, yeah, right? We, we talk about retirement yeah. and what, who are you afterwards? Because somebody just comes in, you know, most jobs come in, replace us. And then we feel like, wait a minute. And most of us derive our identity from what we do in life. It's one of the first questions we ask somebody when we meet them. Hey, what do you do? And then right away, we have all these preconceived notions about that person, right or wrong. But that's what we do. That's what most people do. And our conversations revolve around that. And though, although a lot of people look forward to retirement, it is a stage of life that can be very depressing if we don't uh, become active in other aspects of our lives and try to own some of that. Because people look forward to it. But they're like, oh, now what? Now do I just, am I just waiting to die? No. There's a whole new process yeah. that begins. Well, there's a huh? difference. Now, there's a I, I believe there's a difference in, in in that is the age difference. A lot of people retire 65, 70, whatever. But when you're retiring at 34 years old and yeah. you what you love, what you do, what you know is taken away from you. Yes. Like, listen, some guys make that seamless transition, but the majority of guys really struggle with that. They miss and and, and you'll hear a lot of guys say it. I don't miss the the game so much as I miss the guys. I miss that yes. that family atmosphere yeah. you have in the locker room. A lot of guys, like honestly, people say you miss the game. I, I don't freaking miss it at all. I don't. I, I don't. I don't. It's the camaraderie. The first couple of years I did. Yeah. Yeah, but the camaraderie is what I, I I really struggle with getting out. But that being said, I looked other places for it in the bar yes. room. Oh, hello, guy. Hey, what's up? I kind of yeah. got that same thing there, but, and, um, you know, let's think, uh, let me see it, it, clients and I don't want to get into your clients per se, but have you had uh, any people that you work with that think they have a strong relationship with self and they come to you and they find out, well, I guess I don't. Yeah. Well, that happens. Uh, but I always say, well, you're in here for a reason. I didn't ask you to come. <laughs> so you're in here for a yeah, reason. But if you, I feel, could you, but well, here for a reason. Does, so if someone comes through your doors to see you, does it mean they don't have a good relationship with themselves? It could, no. It, it all starts it, there? No, it doesn't mean that they don't have one, but I always think we can improve the relationship with ourselves. Everyone who walks into my office, that's why, you know, the book is Unfuck Your Life and Relationships, because I believe our mental health hinges on the quality of relationships we have. We can't get away from them. We can't escape them. 
the primary one with ourselves, like I said earlier, when people walk into my office, most of them, 99.9% are coming in with a relational, a relational issue, something that's gone awry, something that's gone bad, and ultimately connects with themselves. Something has happened to them in their relationship. And then we, you know, I'm often thinking, okay, well, let's, let's talk about how this makes you feel. And what does it trigger inside of you? And how are we going to work on it? Because Tim, as you said earlier, that that process only ends when we die. And there's a quote in my book, and I can't remember the woman who said it, but it's about we can be a masterpiece and a work in progress at the same time. And I believe that to the core, we all are, even my, myself, I've had all this therapy and life experiences, I know stuff, but still in my own personal life, day-to-day stuff, I fuck things up too. And I think, oh my God, here we, I thought I was done. We're never done. So getting back to your question is, yeah, there is always a process of, okay, uh, I got to tweak this about myself. I thought I was pretty unfucked, but oh, that part of me, that little girl just came unfucked and I got to put her back in her place. And it's an improvement and tweaking all along the way of journey of life. And I don't know if you guys had time to read the preface of the book and I don't want to totally give it away, but in the preface, I talk, I share a story, but it's a very significant story in that it speaks to exactly what we're taught, what I'm talking about in terms of we think we have worked our issues out at some point and then something happens in our life and we think, oh my God, I thought I had unfucked that, but that was totally a repetition of that. And how did that still happen to me? It still does. We still get triggered by things and that little inner child of ours gets triggered and comes to the forefront. And then we need to work in my in my scenario. I had to work with her and say, wait a minute, Ugh, get back in there. You're not going to dominate this. Um, as soon as I became aware that that's what was happening to me, I quickly unfucked it and I moved forward in the direction that I needed to. And I wanted to go in, if that answers your question, because, yeah, I always think, OK, I, Anita, I've worked on a lot of my ha- issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's progress, Anita, let, not perfection. Let me, yeah, let but, me help you for a second, Anita. Yeah, you're allowed to be a masterpiece and a work in progress simultaneously. Absolutely, absolutely. And we yeah. all Where are. Did that come I believe from? we all are. That, <laughs> that came from the preface. <laughs> you read the preface. <laughs> I, I, I want to sound a little <laughs> psychoanalytical. Thank yeah. you, Chris. You read the preface. No. no, I know you read a lot about it. Thank no, you. The, I appreciate uh, that. I did. Um, yeah. And it's awesome. But it just highlights uh, it because people say, oh, my God, you must have perfect relationships. You must have this. I'm like, no, I don't. Um, yeah. I've worked on myself for a long yeah. time, but I still get triggered. I still slip. But the important part is I become aware of it and I fix it very quickly rather than, you know, be stuck in it for another year or whatever. That's key. It's like the more I go, the more I continue to go, like the, le- the I've realized, like the less I actually knew. Like I keep yeah. finding out more of how wrong I am. Right. Yeah. But in a good way, like yes. that, what I think, you know, 99% of how, what I think the scenario is going to play out never happens. Well, you don't right? know. And, and you're right. Kinda, well, yeah. yeah. And you're right. Go the ahead. more we know, yeah. the more we realize there's so much more to know about ourselves and the world. And that's keeping an open mind, which is, you know, always healthy for relationships, be having an open mind. Okay. Now, um, curious on this one. Uh, we had yeah. a guest uh-huh. um, on here. I won't. I won't say his name, but he's a former athlete, a hockey player. Uh, he suffers from OCD, but he's also a drug addict and an alcoholic. So 
how can just forget the drug addict alcoholic part if we can just say he was just OCD how can a disease like OCD affect someone's relationships in life like especially like you know you get married say you get married yeah. you got OCD yeah and you got to work on those things I get it but how, how can that negatively affect the relationship yeah. Well, I don't know about his situation, so I will not comment on his particular OCD, but I will okay. say in general, uh, people overall, use, like, yeah, I guess, overall, in yeah, I will say in general that overall people use these clinical terms very loosely. I would say, okay, first you'd have to be officially diagnosed with OCD and how they impact the relationship. And, you know, I'm recalling, uh, some people, a, a couple I worked with, gosh, 20 years ago. So I'm not breaching any any confidentiality because I'm not naming anybody. It was a long time yeah. ago. That how it, literally she could not go to work because of the OCD and was fired a job after job. She would literally have to, she'd get in her car. She would like, oh shit, I left the iron on. Literally oh. would have to go back and forth yeah. four or five, six times where she'd be late for work and eventually she would get fired multiple this was happening repeatedly and her partner at one point says you know I I can't deal with this because we as a couple you know people have financial agreements obligations all that kind of stuff it interferes in every aspect of your relationship and of course the relationship falls apart she did get better over time with um, therapy and was working on you know and OCD there's some you know I'm not a I don't push medication but you know medication is there for a reason and it does work. I always say, well, if you had diabetes, you would take uh, insulin. So certain people do need medication mm -hmm. to control some diagnoses and help them manage it. Um, and when it's and in her situation, we did use some. She was prescribed some medication through a psychiatrist, and we work hand in hand together. When it comes to medication, I just want to say as a side note. The highest rate of efficacy is really when we combine it with talk therapy. I hate, hate it when people come into Take my office and there's on, they're on, they've been on, I didn't on a pill. And I'm like, well, for how many years? 10. I'm like, well, how do you know that you still need it? They're like, oh, I've never even thought about that because the doctor just, you know, all due respect to doctors because they're, you know, I have some friends who are physicians. Drug and dealers. Excellent doctors, some drug dealers. But there yeah. are doctors who will just keep giving Prozac just, and I'll say, well, how do you know you still yeah. need this? And they're like, oh yeah, that's true. I never thought about it. It's been 10 years. Have you? And I think, okay, well, that's a different conversation. But so when I just want to say, generally speaking, if it, whether it's OCD, whether it's anxiety, if you have something, you're diagnosed with it, even if you're not diagnosed, it just means, you know, clinician hasn't put that label on you. It's really about managing it. And once, you know, and you know, when you, there needs to be intervention when, Whatever it is that you have starts to interfere with your social functioning, meaning going out with people, your emotional functioning, your relational functioning, where you're having lots of relational issues, and your vocational functioning, where you don't go to work anymore because of your anxiety is so high, you can't get out of bed. So when it starts to interfere with your functioning, then you know you need some, you need professional help. And then uh, hopefully with a combination of therapy and medication, only if needed, uh, that you can that that stops interfering with your day to day life. Tim, did you if, get that? Uh, did you turn the volume up there? You need professional <laughs> help. Why? Yeah. What no, are you I'm, trying I'm to say? I'm hey, I'm what are you trying to say? I'm Just say I'm it. trying to say I need it. <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to say I need it, apparently. No. You um, know, one of the things in my books is just say it. Don't fuck mind games, right? Just say it. One of my chapters, right? Unfuck mind reading, right? <laughs> no more mind um, reading. Just say yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> 
so 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 um <laughs> so so what do you god I, I love this i i could just oh, i know could talk on and on like it's interesting but tim you were gonna say How? something and you stop or sorry i interrupted yeah, because... i don't know i was Go gonna ahead, say something Timothy. stupid probably i was gonna nah, <laughs> no, no i was say pro- something stupid we'll tell you if it is hey it's okay no oh, I, will. <laughs> I will no no i i, I oh shoot. hey never mind Barry. i have one you're, question hey, hey, hey and yes. you're fucked oh hey i think i have a you can't I'll try, I'll try. At the beginning, you said family of (laughs) origin. Come on, Barry. Go ahead, Barry. I wanted to just get an idea of your definition of family of origin because I wasn't sure you were meaning the actual family you grew up in or was it a cultural thing of, you know, your French, Indian, Persian, Jewish, or whatever. Uh, So family of origin, yeah, family of origin in mental health and psychotherapy means your parents, like. Your parents who fucked okay. you up in your family of origin. <laughs> so you got to right. get unfucked. It's your parents, your siblings, and they might not be your biological parents. They might be somebody, you know, you had to live with because your original parents couldn't take of you, take care of you. I've had that happen. You know, aunts and uncles, you might have grown up with them. So it's where you grew up. Your family of origin is where we learn all of this stuff. Yeah, there is our hardcore personality that we come out with. But I think in terms of relationships and how we handle our emotions, uh, negative and positive, really is a function of how are we taught? Did your parents tell you to shut the fuck up and not talk? Like my dad basically said, stop talking. You'll probably say something stupid. So I grew up with that inside my head. Like today you'd be like, what? But there was a time in my life where I didn't speak. Like I know it's impossible to imagine that now because now I can't shut the fuck up. But literally my father would say to me, and this was until I was like 18, 19 years old. He would say, you know, before that, don't say anything. And especially if we have people over, he's like, don't say anything. You probably say something stupid and embarrass me. So just sit there. And I literally would just sit there. And I remember, you'll read this in my book, going out into the world, I would just sit there and be like, well, is she fucking deaf? Me or what the fuck's wrong with it? The girl doesn't speak. Because I carried that, my dad's voice in my head, and I formed a whole belief system about myself from that message that I, that I carried into the world until people in the outside world said, what's going on over here? And I'm like, I don't know, but then I, you know, I can go back, I can pinpoint where that actually came from. It was pretty uh, blatant. And what's awesome though, is you said in the beginning, like you look, your parents, they did the best they could with what they were given. It's like, you don't blame that. So it's just kind of like, you know, there's no judgment on that. That takes a lot. I think that that's, that's the whole goal. I think, right. And I only reached that level uh, as a, you know, later on in my life when I could see my parents as adults and not as my parents. That's a very different perception and view of your parents. If you think about them like, okay, my dad. And if you read the story of migration of my dad and his life, I think, oh my God, like all the shit that goes on in the world today. And mm-hmm. I hear of some of the stuff. I think that man suffered greatly, but look what he did in his <laughs> life, right? People are so helpless today. He was never a victim or helpless but he became, I think, very depressed in his life and he didn't have the help that we have available today. And I don't and maybe if he did, he wouldn't have gone because it's a male thing. You know, depression is huge. And I want to share because I'm with, you know, three men over here that depression in men manifests itself very differently to depression in women. Women, 
number one symptom, they're sad. And we're not, we're, we're able to say we're sad. We look sad, all we embrace it, right? It's a cultural thing, socialization. Men, often the symptoms of depression, they manifest in anger, irritation. They start doing stupid things like, you know, motorcycles driving crazy, um, angry, um, hiding, all of a sudden become very isolating themselves. And people will say, you know, I've worked with couples where they, well, he's just a jerk. He's always so angry all the time. And then through working with him and the couple, I realized he's not angry. He's just very depressed. And this is the way the depression is being expressed. And we need to be very cognizant of that. And why? Because when it comes to suicide, although women com- attempt suicide far greater than men, men are much more successful at it because they use things like guns. I mean, so it's really important that we as a society start looking at male depression. Whoops, somebody's phone. Oh, Where? my so we God. Need to Barry's never <laughs> Barry's, You're totally he's never been depressed. Barry's never been depressed. Fuck this podcast. Yeah, totally. He's never up. been depressed. <laughs> Barry's never been depressed. He has no idea what you're talking about. So just just getting um, back to the importance yeah. of why we need to be able to identify, diagnosis, and treat it, and then just looking at our, our parents. And I look at my dad, and I think, okay, he suffered with depression. And as a child, you can't see. I wasn't able to see that. I'm trying to, you know, live my life and find my way. But as an adult looking back, and especially in writing this book, I, I see it very clearly. And I think, oh, I have a lot of respect for that guy. Yeah. That's you awesome. know, and it, listen, I did some um, of that family of origin work, that inner yeah. child work when I was yeah. in treatment. Uh, I took an intensive therapy for, I was in it for two weeks. And it was some of the best learning experiences I, I have ever had in my life. Now, um, when I look back and just talking about your situation and yeah. talking about depression and, but I look at, when we look at, let's say alcoholism and drug addiction and you talk yeah. about family and I'm, I never wanted to look at my parents like, Oh, they were the problem. I had to look at the reality of it, yes. what I was in and realize and looking back now and seeing how it's transgenerational yeah. that it, it started way before my mom and dad. Right. And it just gets passed and passed and passed like yourself until someone's willing to break the cycle. Right. right. Yeah. And and it's same with alcoholism and same like with your life. Now, you would have been married off. You 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 stood up against that Absolutely. and you went a whole different direction. I did. And and you broke that cycle in your I family. And, yeah. and don't I, give my book away. Know. Stop it. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I was no, just going to say, don't I, give the story I, away. I, I, yeah, that's absolutely. coming from, that's coming from, um, my family of origin yes, work I did. Absolutely. Back in, and you're making, in, you're making a really good point. You know, when I do therapy with people, I like to have, and I ask them, you know, let's do like a, it's called a genogram. We're going to get geeky and tech clinical about it, but it is the really. Table. Look, have you yeah, done the a, table? Oh, not the table yet. This is a genogram, but basically <laughs> it's what you're talking about. It's a, it's a family tree. But what it encompasses is all the psychological problems that have been transferred from one generation to another, addictions that have gone from one generation to another. And you look at the, that lineage and you think, okay, well, in my generation, I'm going to do something so it does not repeat itself. And I don't pass this down because it's not something that I want to pass down. But in order to do that, we have to look at it. And Chris, you know, kudos to you that you saw that it wasn't just your parents. It went beyond that. And you were just part of this link 
and then you had to break it somewhere, you know, in that link. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. it's like you, uh, you, you, you don't. It's like you see the you see the trend, but it's like truthfully, you don't have to be that way. Like you don't, you know no. what I mean? Like that's right. how, right? And that's where I think it's, you know, like with yeah, you it's you don't have to be a victim, and you know. I don't know. No, don't I'm know always a survivor. No, keep going, no, keep going, no, Tim. No, no, keep no, going. No, yeah, 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 Tim, sure. you're making you always, a very good point. You get going and then you jump. Don't you know? Well, no, I, you know, I'm just I'm, dive know, in the it's... deep end, Tim. Go ahead, Tim. Um, no, I, I <laughs> no, fucking I'm, be in the shallow I'll, end the rest listen, of your life. I don't want to send you guys an invoice. I don't want to no, charge no, you guys. No, no, no. This is not therapy. Let me just say, this is not therapy. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, no, no, I'm just saying. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I just, uh, no, I don't know where I was going with that. I was just saying, like, I think whatever you're feeling, and I mean, whatever anyone's feeling, it's like, the truth is, is you don't, you, if you don't, if you really want to, you don't have to feel that way. It just, that takes a lot of, uh, it takes help. It takes help. Sometimes, yeah. Right? And you know, so, nobody wants think, to feel that. I think but, Jewel, like, I think about, uh -huh. I, sorry, what, go ahead. No, go ahead, Tim. No, I was going to say, I I was thinking, like, I listened to this one podcast with Jewel, and she was on Joe Rogan, and she was talking about how, like, she looked, she was, she was like, just looking around, and it's like, everything changes, right? And it's like, yes. we think we can't. It's like, yeah. you get in that permanent, what sometimes, like, you can get depressed, and you think the whole world is depressing, but it's just, you don't have to feel that way. It's a lot easier said than done. I'm just, yes, I don't know. Is. Like I said, I'm now I'm rambling and I'm making no, no points. No, no, no. What just, you're saying is Chris really told valuable. me to talk. And when Chris tells me what to do, I do <laughs> then it. you do it. Oh my God. You're Chris's <laughs> no, bitch now, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I know how this is working bitch, out. Yeah. No, no. No, but I'm I want to, but kidding. you're making a really good point. I want to, I want to just speak to that. Uh, can't this whole thing about, I can't change people can't change. I always, you know, doing what I do, I have to believe my profession is based on the concept of change. And I think if you if you want to change, you will work hard enough to be different, to be in a different place than where you are today. Change is a huge word. People are threatened by it. They're scared of it. They want it. But at the same time, they run away from it because when we are wanting to change or has wanted to get help to change, then we're going into a, a very unfamiliar place. And, you know, unfamiliar place scares us talking about fear. Uh, some of us rather live in our misery, which is very comfortable and known to us. Those are the people who always complain, and, but you, they never do anything with their life. And I'm not one of those people, as you probably already know, that if you want to change, you can make the change and you have to take concrete steps to make that change happen. And you have to be ready to get comfortable with the unknown because what's on the other side of what you've been doing for so many years, your narrative, you're stuck in that narrative about yourself and about the world. Uh, in order to rewrite your narrative, you have to be able to put yourself out there. You have to, and you don't know yeah, what's going to be do, out you there. Gotta do th you got to do things you don't want to do. Absolutely. Um, and and going for therapy you know, sometimes like is not what people sound, want. Yeah. yeah. I could sound how I'm sounding right now. It's great, but I can, you know, in five minutes after this, I could go right into my mode of like, I don't want to talk to anybody. Right. Like, yeah. But I, I, I know I'm aware today though. That's not, that's the old me like wanting yes. to isolate Like I'm still going to have that, but you know, right. So, I guess, but you take I small steps every day. You know, I believe that, yeah. you know, people say, oh, psychoanalysis takes four years. Yes, it does. But the way I work with people is I always say, okay, well, Let's explore the past so we can get some understanding. So ex exploration is important for me. Understanding is important. And then, but the, all of that needs to lead to some kind of concrete change. So yeah, we can explore your past and see the relevance of, 
maybe why you do what you do. But at the same time, I need to be able to help you on a day to day, week to week basis to make small changes. And sometimes people will, they're stuck in the why. And this is really important thing to talk about. Well, why do I do this? I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's try, you know, let's delve in the past. And sometimes we can't figure out the why and people get stuck in the why. And I say to those people and people watching and listening today, sometimes the why we can't get to it and it doesn't matter, but we can't be stuck there. If we can't answer the why, we can answer the what, which is we need to make the change and this is how we're going to change it. Because people do like, oh, why, why, why? I've been stuck in the why for five fucking years. We're not going to do that anymore. We don't know why, but we do know what. What needs to change? Here's here's one twice. Now, um, and... Listen. Why does Barry keep coming on? No. Yeah, what happened? Jamie and I, <laughs> in my Why? personal relationship with Jamie, yeah. when we first started dating and then we're living together, I had we had a situation in the home where I snapped the wire. wasn't good. Um, I scared her. I scared the dogs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then we. Right away, I felt bad. We talked about it, um, and she said, "Chris, you know, I, I'm in." Kudos to her. She said, "I can't stay in this relationship if that's going to be something I'm going to have to face again, and you need to do something about it." And she got mm-hmm. my attention, and mm-hmm. I did do something about it. Um, my golden retriever had an incredible impact on me other than Jamie my mm-hmm. dog was incredible in helping me get through those issues now mm-hmm. I, I will watch a hockey game and the at least tense I got of a goal and I went oh that dog will come next to me and sit there and look at me like please don't do that again and mm-hmm. he was really cognizant of my mood my feelings and was always there for me mm-hmm. that unconditional love yes. now do you think unconditional love is achievable or it's even a thing in relationships? I think in parental relationships. With the dog, maybe, but I'm yeah, saying with, with Jamie. Me really, and Jamie. Well, with your partner, no, yeah. because you might cross some boundaries that are unacceptable for her. And should she have to love you unconditionally for that? I believe not. And that would fall apart anyway. If you continue to behave like that, unless, you know, and people do have sadomasochistic relationships where they're totally fucked up in the relationship, but neither one wants to leave. And, but that's symbiotic and that's a whole nother conversation we can have at a later time. But if you continue to breach people's physical and emotional boundaries and they respect themselves enough. Like if that was you and I, I'd be like, okay, Chris, I've given you multiple chances. You keep doing this. Either you unfuck the stuff or I'm going to be out because I respect myself more than this. And if you loved me, uh, you would respect me, but clearly you don't. So go get some help. And if I, you know, and you did apologize, you owned it. And that's part of it. And you didn't go into, oh my God, you're just crazy. You don't get me. You didn't, you didn't, attack yeah. back you stopped it sounds like you stopped you thought about it and you I took felt responsibility like shit. i felt like yeah. shit yeah i felt terrible and 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 then the for me was what was the real kicker for me was after a few years the validation from jamie yeah. that you know what 
you did do something about it. I'm so happy. And I'm so yeah. proud of you that you yes. did. You addressed it, which uh, honestly for me, then I'm like, and that just helped me immensely in my life. What she yeah. did, and and she did have that boundary. And good for I, her. Yeah. You know, I'm not patting myself on the back. Oh, I did something about it, but I did because I value no. and love her. Yes. Like. It, it, like no one else. You respect, just, and you respect the relationship so. and the rela- And I would say to people, well, if the relationship matters to you and you want the relationship in your life, what are you willing to do for it? People always want the other person to change for the other person. Because I, I have to hear this, oh, my partner doesn't yeah. love me. Or, and I'm like, well, how do you show them yeah. love? What is this about your relationship being a place that you go to only to get? What are you giving to the relationship yourself yeah. that you might get love in return? So this whole thing about unconditional love for my partner, that's fucked up because if you're not being kind, respectful yeah. of my boundaries and appreciating me, uh, that's not going to work. That's going to be an abusive relationship. And that's not... Love. Abusive and maybe codependent a little. Well, the codependency is a whole new subject. I mean, I, yeah. I don't, people are okay. I, sometimes I, feel like, uh, okay, to. let's go there on a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. what is codependency? No, I feel like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel like. Are we really all I'm dependent on each other? I don't know. What? Sorry. Yeah, don't know. Tim, go ahead. You no, no, I was going to say that I'm, I find out like more and more like, in, that you know men and women are different like I, my wife i can really get like oh my wife she asks me every morning you see my phone right like and i'm like my wife but then like my buddy says you know his, his wife does the same thing and i'm like okay well you know what women are different than men and it's not you know i don't have a wife problem i just gotta understand that you know she's different than i am and well it's I think accepting differences that has helped me like yeah it's accepting yeah, yeah 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 go ahead whatever we're we're dealing with it's accepting the fact that no one is a mirror image of ourselves emotionally, physically, unless you're a twin, you are, uh, but no one is. And then we have to accept the fact that that other person has a different perspective on things. And we have to, if we want the relationship to work and to be healthy, we have to allow for that to exist in our coupleship. Because, and I always think that society does relationships, marriage, whatever it is, a coupleship disservice by promoting this union and this fusion, this oneness. We should all be in love and be one. That's a, that's a bunch of bullshit because mm-hmm. it sets us up for failure because then we think our partner should think and feel what we do. And when they don't, we think that's fucked up. That's, that's not what I married or that's not what I, because it was no. supposed to be about a oneness. Oh, I'm yeah. like, no, two yeah. identities exist both identities need to respect each other's existence and nurturance and helping them to fly because throughout the relationship, our our identity changes. We all change. If it's a long-term relationship, we are going to change and we have to allow for those, we have to allow for that space of change for ourselves and for our partner. So this oneness, this fusion sure. is bullshit. Yeah. Difference is important. For Acknowledging sure. and respecting differences. We have to be able to do that. Anita. Um- I got to tell you, this has been just awesome talking to you, getting um, some insights on how to, folks. And if you want to know how to unfuck your life (laughs) and your relationships, you make sure you pick up this book uh, by Anita, Anita Astley, Unfuck Your Life and Relationships. You can go to Anita's website if you want and um, check out uh, her website askanitaastley.com. Uh, you can get this book again, Simon and Schuster, 
um, Amazon, Bonds and Noble, BAM, Books a Million, B Bookshop, IndieBound, to name a few. Once again, it comes out December 6th. And you can also follow Anita on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, under Ask Anita Astley. And Anita, just awesome to have you today. It was so much fun. Thank and you so much. Now I'm 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 cured. Yeah. I'm gonna have the best relationships in the world oh, yeah. with my mailman. Oh, yeah. He's right. Hey, I never said that. Right hey, hey, don't get ahead of yourself. I never said that. Who's, wait, real quick. Who's your favorite Habs player? Who is your favorite Habs player? Oh, I can't say. It, well, it was Patrick Roy. No. You know, I don't know. My, oh, I gotta give a. Can, I have to That's give a fine. shout out to my brother for connecting us. Can I do that, please? For oh, Sunil? Sunil's the best. Yeah. Can we? I just want, he's my younger brother, but he's 10 years younger than me. I'm like his mom. I love that kid. So I just, can I share a story? Do we have time? So when uh, I had left home, I don't know how old he was. He has this picture on his wall. He said, oh, you know, my mom didn't drive. So Patrick Roy was coming to Zellers. You guys remember Zellers? Mm. It was in the, in Point Claire. So he yeah. didn't have anybody to take. I said, I'll take you, kid. Come on, let's go. So we got in the car together. And keep in mind, he's 10 years younger than me. So he's walking next to me. He's all excited. It was the best moment in his life, right? So mm-hmm. literally, we walk in the store, and Patrick Rowe was right next to me. I didn't even know it was the guy. And my brother says, oh, my God, that's Patrick Rowe. I'm like, really? So I took out my camera. I flash up the, And Patrick really was like, hey, you know, such a nice guy. And then no he's, boundaries. We, we speak, yeah. I didn't know who he was. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> hey, I was only, I was really. Young. So to this day, he remembers and he has, a, he has a picture of that moment in his Habs cave. You know, you guys, Chris, you've seen it. it well, he's I'm the going there Saturday fan. night. Are you? Yeah, there's a fundraiser, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm going to go. I wasn't, he's been... If I was able to go, I would totally attend. But yeah, I just want to give a shout out. He's an amazing brother and the biggest Habs fan I know. <laughs> yeah, he's awesome guy. Uh, he's a awesome. lot of fun. I went over and checked out the cave. Yeah. And uh, I gave him a hard time because he had everybody's jersey in there, uh, other than all the Hall of Famers, none of the slugs. Yeah. So he eventually went out and got my jersey. And but I there was a reason. I, I, he I told you him. why. What I no? guilted him. <laughs> there I was guilted him into getting my jersey. <laughs> He's but a super awesome brother. guy. Yeah. He's an awesome guy. Yeah, he's he my is. brother. Kudos. And so, I want to thank you. Uh, thanks to him that, you know, we got this podcast going. So thank you so much, awesome. guys, for having me on. And of course, bringing awareness to mental health relationships and especially, you know, with athletes and so forth. We all got to get unfucked sometimes. Yeah. You know?